0: Napoleon Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. I'm JNP and this is Modern Media.
1: You know, if you're a literary scholar, you're quoting the poem or the play or the novel, right? And you, you, you're using the same tools, language. If you're a film scholar or a television scholar, you're not. You are describing moving images and sounds. And I think that those of us who are trained in this area have really taught ourselves how to do this, but in a way that is not organic to the media.
0: My guest today is Jason Mattel, Professor of Film and Media Culture and American Studies at Middlebury College in Vermont. He's the author of several books on contemporary television and film, including Genre and Television, Television and American Culture, Complex Television, and Narrative Theory and Adaptation. He's also the co-editor of How to Watch Television, which is currently in its second edition. And he's the co-author, with Christian Keithley, of The Videographic Essay. He and Keithley are the co-leaders of a two-week intensive workshop focused on producing video-based scholarly criticism, which they've been hosting at Middlebury since 2015. I sat down with Jason Mattel to talk about videographic criticism, its history and evolution, the practices that comprise it, and its place in the world of media criticism in the academy jason mattel welcome to modern media pleasure so i'd like to start by asking you to give us a brief history of not only your own relationship to videographic criticism but a history of the practice itself as you understand it a sort of context for how to understand the work and where it comes from
1: yeah so i mean there are a lot of really important antecedents experimental film and uh some sort of multimedia criticism that emerged in the 90s. Uh, But I think that really, for for me, and the way that we teach it and and sort of think about it in the various projects I've been involved with, videographic criticism emerges in the mid-2000s or so as a form of somewhat experimental and then somewhat just sort of pushing the boundaries on how you can convey information using audio and video. And I think that some of the really early examples um, are not coming from academia. And it's really journalistic critics who are sort of exploring this realm. Uh, One of the most important examples of this is Matt Zoller Seitz, who was, still is, a uh, journalistic critic. He writes for... Vulture. He is the editor of RogerEbert.com. He's written books about film and, and, and like, and he also has a background as a filmmaker. So he was making these video essays that were on online. He started a blog called Press Play that was sort of sharing a lot of this material. Um, another really important person is Kevin B. Lee. And Kevin was a film critic, a uh, freelance blogger really who Started writing about film and then realized, hey, I want to I want to illustrate some of these things with clips and then started editing the clips together and said, I don't want to write, I want to talk and you know so then he started making video essays and he's incredibly prolific. He's made over three hundred of them and has done really excellent work. So the, the sort of journalistic realm and then you have the another realm that's similar to this is the kind of DVD commentary. So you have uh, a number of paratexts that are created for video releases, uh, that you'll often have a critic, uh, sometimes a sort of academic critic, sometimes more of a journalistic critic, or some people who are kind of straddling the difference. An important figure there is Adrian Martin, the Australian critic. Um, He has taught in higher ed, but he's not an academic. And he started doing DVD commentaries, and then that emerged into, now he's a very prolific video essay creator with his partner, uh, Cristina Alvarez Lopez. So there's a lot of uh, this sort of experimental work that's happening. And what starts to become clear is that there's an audience for this on platforms. It's incredibly shareable on YouTube and Vimeo and that there is a way to engage people who wouldn't read an academic article by making a video essay. So uh, my colleague at Middlebury, uh, Christian Keithley, was another important early innovator in this. He actually comes from uh, this hybrid mode. He has both an MFA in production from the Art Institute of Chicago and a PhD in film studies from University of Iowa. And he's always been interested in this hybrid work. He did a master's thesis, which was really, you know, it was a film, like actually film celluloid, um, but it was kind of like a video essay. So I think that his innovations there were really important. And then he started doing this work after he wrote a more traditional book uh, for tenure. And then I saw what he was doing and said, oh, this is really interesting. And that kind of... uh, was my entree into this realm
0: and you had come from that sort of academic writing as the currency in academia what attracted you to this way of thinking about moving images and television and film
1: i came at it in a way that was not at all about making videographic work i i started getting really interested in digital publishing and that dates back to the sort of i started a blog in 2006 and found that a really engaging form of writing. So I really liked writing for a more general audience and engaging with people online and kind of being part of that sort of nascent media studies blogosphere that also had a lot of crossover with television critics as well. So I was kind of in that realm, kind of semi-public realm. And this led me down the, the emerging rabbit hole of digital humanities. In 2013, I collaborated with a couple of colleagues at Middlebury to uh, launch our, what we called our digital liberal arts initiative. And I was the faculty director of that for uh, around five years. And um, it was really trying to think about digital humanities as alternative modes of scholarship using digital tools and methods. And so that was really my interest this also connects with a long standing connection I've had to a platform called Media Commons. Media Commons uh, started as an alternative publishing platform for media studies. And again, this was digital publications, so that was my interest. My interest there connected with videographic work because we. Um, Because I'm I'm colleagues with Chris at Middlebury and good friends as well, he told me about the sort of emerging videographic work, and he was in conversations with Catherine Grant, the British scholar who I knew as a blogger. She started and runs Film Studies for Free, which is an incredible online resource for uh, film studies. And the two of them were talking about what would it mean to start a journal of video essays, and he asked me, because he knows that I knew a lot about digital publishing, and I said, oh, this may be a good fit for Media Commons. And at the same time, Drew Morton, who was another uh, film scholar who did video work, uh, had reached out to media, media Commons with the very same question. So I said, well, let's put us all together. So the four of us had some Skype calls, was before Zoom, <laughs> everything was on Skype, and sort of talked through this. And out of this, uh, was that was the seeds that created In Transition which was the first peer-reviewed journal of videographic criticism. The idea that scholars would create videos as the work of scholarship, and then we would publish them on In Transition, which was hosted by Media Commons, and it also would have an open peer review format.
0: So it sounds like your interest was more with the issue of digital publishing and different ways to engage audiences rather than with producing videographic work specifically.
1: I didn't really care at all about the videos. My interest was about the open peer review and the digital publishing. But the other angle that came in here was about, um, through my work with the Digital Liberal Arts Initiative, I was thinking about are there ways to sort of fold the videographic work that Chris was doing into this sort of digital humanities project. And I um, told Chris about this grant that the NEH offers, called the Institutes for Advanced Topic in Digital Humanities. And basically what it is, is it's a way to get funded to host a workshop to teach people some new emerging digital tool or method. You know, he had been teaching uh, videographic criticism to undergrads at Middlebury for a few years. And I, I said, do you think that you could do this Um, This was right around the time that In Transition was launching, and we said, you know, if we could teach this to scholars, this would really help the journal, right? You know, so it would help establish a base of creators and peer reviewers. So we applied for the grant and got the grant, and in summer of 2015, we ran our first workshop for teaching videographic criticism at Middlebury.
0: So what were your expectations? I mean, did you have a sense that there would be a lot of interest among scholars for a workshop like this? Or were you kind of hoping for the best? We had no idea what the interest would be. You know, we sort of
1: budgeted and planned everything for a participant base of at least 12, hoping for 12 and and 15 or so. Um, And we... uh, ended up getting, I think, 115 applicants. So we are blown away by people really wanted to learn this. So that allowed us to pick a total cream of the crop, great group of people for that first workshop.
0: So this leads me to a question about challenges that people might face when they're first trying to do this work. When I first encountered it, my first thought was, you know, oh, I think I understand what I would do. And it was more in line with, you know, here's how I would use video to explain a concept that I'd already explained in class or something like that. It was a pretty severe lack of imagination, it seems. So I guess I'm wondering, when you brought these scholars in, what were the challenges that people faced in terms of understanding this as a different form of discourse, rather than just an addition to what they already do?
1: Yeah, I mean, you've hit on one of the both major sort of landmines that people hit, and also the greatest opportunity. You know, if you're a literary scholar, you're quoting the poem or the play or the novel, right? And you, you, you're using the same tools, language. If you're a film scholar or a television scholar, you're not. You are describing moving images and sounds. And I think that those of us who are trained in this area have really taught ourselves how to do this, but in a way that is not organic to the medium. Because of that, we have, these exercises I mentioned are designed to break people of that habit. The model that you talked about, that we, we say this in the first day of the workshop or in the classes that Chris and I teach about this at Middlebury, is that what we're trying to avoid is creating an illustrated lecture, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that for many of us, and certainly for me initially, that was my impulse. It's like, okay, you write a script, And then you read your voice, you read that script as a voiceover, and then you put the images as wallpaper over it. And is that better than nothing? Yeah. And there are some very explanatory videos out there that I think that works for, but it does not tap into the possibilities and, and it's not exciting. So the exercises that we do in that first week are designed to not. Start with what do you want to say, but rather, how do you put images and sounds together? They're very formally parametered and they are very limiting. So what often happens, when, especially when we have scholars, especially those of us with gray hair, <laughs> like um, the, the instinct is to say, okay, I'm writing an essay or I'm writing a book about this topic, so I want to make a video essay that will go ahead and complement that and thus I want it to sort of illustrate my ideas and what we try to do is say no 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 no. no. we want you to discover something about this film and do it in Adobe Premiere which is the platform we use Premiere is your laboratory it's your place where you will run experiments to make discoveries about the object and that's the way you discover something by, by tinkering in in the software
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So there's a lot of questions that come up for me with that. But one of them is, it seems like you guys are enacting the very thing we often try to tell students to do, especially when we're having them analyze cultural artifacts, especially popular cultural artifacts that they may be very familiar with. That the first step is to make it very strange to you. You have to make it strange. You have to walk away from it in some way and see it from a different angle. And that's so hard to do. And it seems like this is very much in keeping with that idea. 100%.
1: 100%. Like another one of the lines we always say is that the goal is to, you, you take a film or a television show, whatever whatever your object is, you import it into Premiere. And once it's in Premiere, you treat it not as a film, but as an archive of sounds and images. And that's that making strange process. The first assignment we give is, it's called a videographic pecha-pucha. And the Pecha Kucha is this form of presentation. It's a lightning talk and it's very parametered. You know, you are supposed to uh, do a presentation in which you have a slide deck of 20 slides and each slide stays on screen for exactly 20 seconds. And it's an autoplay thing. So you give a talk and it ends up being six minutes and 40 seconds with this highly parametered slide deck. And why 20 seconds? It's totally arbitrary. But what it does is it forces you to think not about how do I want to give my talk, but how do I have to do it? Mm -hmm. The videographic version is you need to make a video of exactly one minute long that has 10 clips from your film of six seconds each. And then that goes over a continuous one minute audio clip from your film. And that's the exercise. There's no uh, mandate as to what it's supposed to say or what it's supposed to mean. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to think about six seconds as, you know, a unit and then put them together. And that's where you make these discoveries.
0: And I I can see now why you'd say like, don't work with something you already know that well, because I can immediately see myself going like, what point do I want to make about the big Lebowski? All right. Right. Right.
1: (laughs) And, And we tell people that, you know, the goal is to make first, think later, is, a, is one of our mantras. But that's, to, that's not to say that critical insight can't come from this. Uh, one of my favorite examples is I did a, a, a remote workshop teaching this, this method at Miami University of Ohio. And uh, Jen Malkowski was there, who's now at Smith College. And um, Jen was working on The Children's Hour, the film, which is a film she knows really well and she has taught many times but she made this of kucha and put these things together and and it was a really nice little almost like character study but what she realized you know the film is, is about this sort of repressed lesbian um desire and there's this couple of uh, these two women and what she realized is that the protagonist and the her sort of love object one of them is wearing a coat at the beginning of the film and the other character is wearing the exact same coat at the end of the film. She says, I've watched this film so many times, I've never noticed this before. But as I was assembling clips, I noticed this. I was like, wow, that, that's like the same coat, you know? And so like those little details can come through because you're not thinking about narrative structure or, you know, formal analysis. You're thinking about six six second bits of video
0: It sort of switches the the, the the polarization of how we do this thing right the so we usually think our thoughts and here's what i'm going to make of it and then here's how i'm going to say it and you're we're yeah. sort of reversing this i'm going to say something and then think through what i've just said exactly and then
1: obviously you know the, so the patria kucha and all the exercises in that first week of the workshop um are not designed to be presented Right, like they're. I mean, they are. And if you like search for videographic Petrakuchu, you'll find a lot of them. Um, you'll find a lot of examples on our website, um, Videographicessay.org is our website that has this this whole approach sort of laid out with a lot of uh, written material as well as uh, video examples. But you know, the goal is not to make something for someone else. It's really it's an etude. It's the type of thing you do to learn the skills and to make discoveries.
0: Speaking of these highly parametered things, part of the digital humanities is this computational analysis of cultural artifacts, right? So taking literary forms and putting them into data sets and how you do that with film and video. And one of the things that fascinated me was the experiments with average shot length and making a film. And I think one of the, you talked about was the opening or the car crash scene in Mulholland Drive where you took the average shot length of the film and then made every shot in the in that scene adhere to that average shot length. So speeding up, slowing down, yep. and the effect that had on how that scene played out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the thinking behind something like that.
1: Like I said, I was really interested in digital humanities. And uh, one of the concepts that I find most interesting in digital humanities is deformative criticism. And Mark Sample who's a great media scholar at um, Davidson College, had a very influential blog post about this. Um, And he is basically arguing that we should, as scholars, be making deformed versions of the things that we study as a mode of expression and exploration. And one of the great things about software is that it's very easy to create experiments that deform things. In Premiere, you can go ahead and apply very arbitrary constraints and manipulations onto your footage and just see what happens. So I started playing with this and and really was exploring what Uh, deformative criticism uh, or deformative videographic criticism looks like. And I have a a written essay about this um, in the Debates in Digital Humanities from, I think it's 2019. And it basically asks, like, how might we use videographic criticism to do some of these digital deformations? And the average shot length was one that, you know, that's a very well-known statistical tool for film studies, where you basically look at a film and you count the number of edits in it, and then you divide that by the length of the film, so that gives you your average shot length. And that's obviously useful to get a sense of, is this a very quick cut film or a very slow cut film, long take aesthetic versus more montage aesthetic, et cetera. So what I did was I created this idea of the equalized pulse, which takes that average shot length and says, what if it's not average, but uniform? So every shot in the film or the scene has the same length. It's a really easy manipulation to make in premiere. You can kind of tinker and see what happens. And the effect is really fascinating. I have a number of examples of this tied to the article where it makes the film very, very strange, but it also reveals some of its design and potentially reveals some some sort of moments in the film that stand out differently.
0: But what would you say to somebody who said well but that's not the film right that's the film was made to be to have this effect on you and you are deforming it and you're not even studying the same object
1: I mean I think that yes it's not the film as it was released but I think that all forms of remix are transformative, right? Like that's at their core is, is the definition. And some of those transformations are done for uh, explanatory reasons. So we deform things. I mean, not deform things, but we transform things when we teach them in class. We take clips and we show them to students. And you, when you are writing a scholarly essay, you're focusing on particular moments or you're juxtaposing different things from different parts of the film. You know, yes, obviously changing a 16-second shot into four seconds is more deformative than those normal critical manipulations, but I think it's more on a spectrum. The other thing I would say is that these deformations are not scholarship, they are research they are the types of experiments that scientists do and that artists do, right? On two sides of the spectrum, you know, you have artists who are doing experimental things and sort of seeing what happens. And then you have scientists who are experimenting to see if they get interesting results. And this type of work is both of those. It it is algorithmic and it has that kind of playful, artistic, what if in mind.
0: No, great. And I really like that. I really appreciate you, the way you articulate what we always do anyway, it's just that this makes it very apparent what we're yep. doing. We see it as research rather than a particular argument being made. Um, and, and those, I mean, those experiments could lead to an
1: argument, right? Um, you know, I, and it certainly leads to learning things. So, like, one of the things that I really learned in doing that average shot length was I, I did it for a number of musicals. And that's a case where. Obviously, rhythm and tempo in music is so important, but what happens if you impose the visual tempo onto the music? And it creates very weird effects, but you learn something about the way in which musical numbers are edited and musical numbers are constructed.
0: Now, I I want to come back, if if I can, to something about Publishing, so we, you know, these are research examples. But then we have this place like in transition where we can publish these things. How is this impacting, or what sort of counts as scholarship in the academy? For you know, I I can imagine a lot of young scholars immediately being a little bit leery because this may or may not count. How do you sort of address that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was very much the goal of in transition was to provide an outlet that would provide that stamp of legitimacy. So there are a few things that are tied to this. So number one, the fact that we partnered with Cinema Journal was very conscious because we were trying to say, look, here's the top journal in our field, the one that's published by our society, Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And it was a way of them saying, yes, this is not what we publish because we're a print journal, but we see this as legit. So that's one. So that sort of institutional stamp of approval. The second was that we decided to do open peer review, which the the idea is if you publish something within transition, the sort of publication page will include a few elements. The first is the video itself, and that's an original work created and published for the journal. The second is the creator statement. So we ask people to write something, and those really range. Some are one or two paragraphs, some of them are many paragraphs and they're much more, more lengthy explorations of how this video fits into broader scholarly trends, histories, et cetera. The third thing that's on the page is usually two peer reviews. Those peer reviews are published and they are signed. What that means is Anyone who either doesn't know what videographic criticism is, or maybe is skeptical as to why it matters, can go to that publication page and and watch the video and then read how two notable experts have justified the publication. Now, in my mind, and this goes to a broader skepticism I have about the peer review process, is that I think that peer review typically is a black box. And the only way that we know something was validated is because the journal or the the manuscript the monograph publisher has a reputation that they say this is peer reviewed and thus we have to take their word for it i'm sure you have experiences as do i in terms of the way in which the peer review process does not yield better results yeah. and there can be a lot of challenges there so some things that are published that were peer reviewed In retrospect, maybe should not have been. And the flip side is things are often shot down for very shoddy reasons. The idea of having the open peer review does two things. First thing is that it makes that stamp of approval have content. It's not just a binary. Someone gave it a thumbs up. It's this person who has a reputation gave it a thumbs up for these reasons. And second, beyond just that individual publication, is we want to have the broader scholarly field understand what does it mean to have a publishable video essay? What are the standards that we are holding these to? And one of the things I think has been really important is that over the years that the journal's been publishing, those peer reviews are setting the discourse as to what videographic criticism can do and how it can do things in you know, new innovative ways, and in ways that are in keeping with traditions and models that have, are long standing. And then the third thing is the sort of, because we've been very fortunate in this regard, is that we won this award from SCMS, so the journal has another big stamp, plus the number of people who have been publishing with, quote unquote, legit scholarly backgrounds, people who have uh, published a lot in print, if they're the ones either doing the peer reviewing or actually publishing video essays, it says, look, this is, this is legit work because these high quality people are doing it. And and that hopefully just sort of creates the sense of, yeah, what they're doing here is not just this weirdo art experimentation stuff, but it's actually legit scholarship.
0: Um, I'm going to ask you a question now that may be kind of impossible to answer and that's okay. What does a successful video essay look like or what does it do for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no single litmus litmus test I can say, it has to do this or it cannot do this. For me, I think that, that videographic work, that when I watch it, I come away saying, this could not have been done in a written essay. That's really important to me, um, because that means that you're doing something that is formally tied to the mode, that you're not just doing the illustrated lecture that you are really thinking about, I want to say something through this medium that is otherwise very difficult to express. The other thing is that I always like to think about how the, this video is marshalling the aesthetic powers of the material it's using. So is it taking what makes X object Matter and using it in a, in a productive way. That to me, you know, and, and sometimes that way is very surprising. One of my favorite things that we have published at In Transition is um, a piece called Honolulu Monomore. And that is, it's by um, Nick Warr, who's a British scholar slash artist. And it, it takes a Marguerite Dura piece, And so sort of an audio of her reading this and um, a kind of the impulse from Hiroshima Monomore, but it uses the footage from Magnum PI. And you laugh, right? Because this is completely, those those of us who grew up in the eighties remember Magnum PI as not, you know, experimental art film (laughs) fodder, right? So it's this incredibly unusual juxtaposition. It is a beautiful and evocative piece Fantastic. that actually captures, not only does it, it's this weird juxtaposition. is like, wow, you know, like I wouldn't have put these two things together, but it highlights the fact that, you know, Magnum P.I. is haunted by this post-Vietnam malaise that is in melancholy. And this piece brings that out in Magnum P.I. Would I have seen that if I were watching Magnum P.I.? No, but once Nick reveals it, it's there, right? So, like that to me is hugely successful because it takes something from these originals, both Dura and Magnum, and and lets them shine.
0: I can imagine um, reading an article that makes that argument yes. and then having to say, "All right, well, maybe, but let me let me watch the entirety of Magnum PI now to see if I see it," or in this essay, right? now. Yep to really evoke that and say, oh, there it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is that you can deliver on something so much more quickly and immediately. One of the main reasons I think many of us go into this field, like we are moved by the, the media, right? We find film and television and other, you know, media like this powerful and engaging and captivating and the the way that you can use that to create something new and scholarly and critical is is really wonderful. And then the other thing that I think is really useful framework and this is uh, is from my colleague Chris Keithley. He wrote an essay a written conventional essay a number of years ago um about videographic criticism really in its early days more about thinking about its possibilities and analyzing what's already out there and what he argues is that there's a spectrum from explanatory work to poetic work. Explanatory work is kind of the illustrated lecture model, poetic work you know Honolulu Monomore is definitely a poetic work there's nothing explanatory about it whatsoever um and but he said that you know Videographic criticism should be somewhere in that spectrum that brings the poetic and the explanatory together. But even if it's not explanatory, it should have, and this phrase that he uses, I love, it should have a knowledge effect. So the idea, and this is true of a lot of artwork, right? If you think about art that you might see in a museum or gallery that is trying to quote unquote say something, not like a didactic message, but it's trying to change the way you know. And I think that's the idea of this knowledge of So a good video, even if it's very experimental, it's very poetic, it's not trying to be summarizable by a, an abstract, you should still come away having a different understanding of the subject matter than you did going in.
0: It made me think of one of the first things that ever made me really understand the artistic or the the critical components of, of kind of remixing. And that was Bruce Connors, a movie where just this sort of mashup of found footage that he managed to sort of create this sense of, you know, the moving image as a, in some ways, a violent and um, um, erotic undertaking.
1: And if I just build in on that, if I can just put a plug in, a really wonderful artist slash critic, uh, Jennifer Proctor. She makes work that kind of straddles between art and videographic work, and she's published in Transition. And like, she actually did a a movie by Jen Proctor, which is basically a remix or not a re, a remake of um, Bruce Connors' a movie, but using contemporary YouTube footage rather than film found fo- wow. film footage.
0: So, speaking of getting footage for videos, I want to ask you a technical question. What kind of software are you using to capture footage from physical sources like DVDs or from streaming services, um, both of which have necessarily embedded lots of copy protection into the artifacts?
1: We use two methods. Um, Handbrake is our preferred method for physical media. So Mm -hmm. if we have the DVD or the Blu-ray, we'll use Handbrake. If it's a Blu-ray, there's a a piece of software called MakeMKV which you have to use to basically get the Blu-ray into a format that Handbrake can read. So those two pieces of free software are really useful for getting a, uh, a, an MP4, which is really what we need. Getting something off streaming is a little bit more complicated. Um, my colleague, Ethan Murphy, like I said, is always on top of the latest methods. I think the latest tool that he said he was using is called OBS, which is a system. It's actually like a video switcher to basically you do a screen capture of the of the stream. Um, it's not ideal, but it, it'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's one of the challenges. And you know, this is, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of compelling arguments that, that what we're doing is within the realms of fair use under mm-hmm. American copyright law. Um, the big problem is just getting the raw material to, to do when you're dealing with you know, sources that are have proprietary streaming platforms.
0: Well, I wonder if we could address that question. So beyond the technical issues, there are the legal issues. So we're dealing with footage produced by companies and distributed by companies who are very conscious of maintaining their control over this intellectual property. So, I imagine this falls squarely within the fair use realm, but I wonder if you could talk about those legal issues in the context of videographic criticism.
1: I mean, there's absolutely no evidence that um, this work will be uh, you know, subject to lawsuits. Um, you know, so, this is always a question people ask me. It's like, isn't this illegal or won't you get sued? And that's just not, not the case your biggest problem is going to be if you do something that uses uh, you know, copyrighted footage, there is a chance that the copyright bots on YouTube will block it. And yeah. what I've found more and more is that those bots are not blocking the dis- distribution, but rather the monetization. So yeah. like I've done a bunch of videos, um, de- these deformations of singing in the rain, for instance, and, um, you know, YouTube will block if I post a version of the whole film, which I did a manipulated version, and they said no to that. But the most of the footage, what they'll do is they'll just be a copyright claim that says that because there's music that the copyright holders of the music are blocking my monetization, which is fine, because I'm not interested in monetizing yeah. monetizing. Um,
0: so I have one last question, and that is about teaching this, especially to undergrads. So, On the one hand, we might have scholars who come to your workshops who are really interested in exploring the possibilities of this for scholarship and research, but I'm curious about teaching it to undergrad students. Do you find that they are more open to this, or are they skeptical? Um,
1: I think that they—I don't think skeptical is the right word. I think that many of them are really excited by it, right, because— in you know, at Middlebury, many of our students, especially those who major in film and media, imagine themselves being creators in some way, right? They want to go on to to work in the industry, um, and thus they may actually feel more comfortable in Premiere than in Microsoft Word, you know, and that's that that feels more organic to them. So, so students like that, this is feels really exciting too. Um, even students, I mean, I have a few students who um, I've worked with on this who are much more sort of writers and critics, but they get really into the way in which this feels like it opens their possibilities and insights. Even if they still want to be a writer, they, they learn things by playing with this. Um, I think that, again, largely because of Chris's uh innovations and then how he and I developed it in, in collaboration, the method we have for teaching this really works for lots of different uh, types of folks and uh, undergrads really enjoy it. And, you know, some of our students have gone on to do work. I'll put a plug in for um, the uh, a really great podcast called the Video Essay Podcast. That is hosted by Will DeGravio, and Will was an undergrad at Middlebury, and he was the example. He was a, you know, he was a journalist. Like he was the, he rose to be editor in chief of of Middlebury's uh, newspaper, and um, he majored in film largely because it was like the closest thing to journalism, and then he basically discovered videographic work by taking my class and loved it. And now he runs this podcast and is like, is a major figure in the videographic world. He was the TA for one of our workshops one summer. And he's just, you know, he does not consider himself a filmmaker in any way, but, he has discovered that through doing videographic work, he has like these sort of tangible uh, practice uh, skills that he really loves doing. So I think that, that there are a lot of students who get into it thinking now oh, this isn't really for me, but I'll do it, who, who get the bug too.
0: Well, Jason Mattel, thank you so much for being on the Modern Media Podcast. It's been a really uh, fascinating conversation.
1: Well, this was great. It's great to, to talk with you, Jonathan.
0: And that'll do it for another edition of Modern Media. My guest today has been Jason Mattel, professor of film and media culture at Middlebury College in Vermont. You can find out more about Jason and videographic criticism on our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can subscribe to Modern Media on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And of course, make sure to leave us a review. Today's show is produced and edited by me with technical assistance, as always, from Chris Newton. Modern Media is a production of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePauw University.